0: Welcome to the Apostles Houston podcast, and thanks for listening. As a community following Jesus in Houston, we want to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do the kinds of things Jesus did. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we invite you to join us for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. in Houston Heights. For more information, visit us online at ApostlesHouston.org. There should be a Bible in the seat back near you if you want to grab that. Um, again, Luke chapter 8, verse 40 is where we'll begin this morning. Uh, as you're turning there, uh, just if I've not met you, my name is David Cumbie. I'm the lead pastor here at Apostles. And if you're visiting with us, so glad you're here. We're in the middle of a series uh, called Encounters with Jesus. And really just each week we're looking at a different passage uh, from the New Testament of people who encountered the person of Jesus. And this morning we're going to take a look at two desperate people uh, who encountered Jesus and what their encounter with Jesus reveals about some really powerful and transformational truths about who we are and who we uh, encounter in Jesus as God and how that really forms and shapes us uh, as people. And so I invite you again just to open your Bible to Luke chapter 8. We're going to start with verse 40. And so uh, as, as we enter into this story, um, just as it says, Jesus has clearly been away. He's been out of town and he's coming back into town. And as he comes back into town, this small town in Galilee, uh, we get a sense that he, uh, he has uh, a reputation now. He's got some fame. He's, he's built a reputation on his teaching, but also on doing miracles. And so what's happened is the word's gotten out, and people are aware he's coming back to town, and so they they begin to amass, and they crowd around him, and it says they press in, uh, and they were excited to see what this Jesus, this new rabbi, this miracle worker, what's he going to do next? They're excited to see him. And in the midst of this crowd uh, emerges a man named Jairus, and we're told that he's the ruler of of the synagogue there in this town. And that means he's, he's a leader. He's a respected leader in the community. He's a spiritual leader responsible for the worship of God's people. And he, uh, by all accounts, would have been well-known and well-respected. But what we begin to sense almost immediately is that he is a desperate man, that he's come to Jesus because what does he do when he comes to Jesus? We get this image of Jesus walking crowds around and this man making his way through the crowds, and then he falls At Jesus feet and he falls at Jesus feet and he begs him to come to his house because his 12 year old is sick his daughter is sick and she's sick to the point that he knows if she doesn't get help she's going to die And so we get this picture of a man Jairus who's a powerful man and yet he's in a situation where he is utterly powerless to do anything to save his daughter and so one of the most painful, I think, and powerful, powerless feelings you can have in the world is as a parent who knows that your child is suffering. To know that as a parent um, is an almost unbearable burden. And so Jairus is bearing that weight. He's bearing this, this, this burden of his sick and dying child, and he, he's willing to do whatever it takes And the last thing he can think of in his desperation, the only thing he can think of at this point, after he's probably tried everything else, is to seek out Jesus. And so he comes to Jesus, and that's why he falls at his feet. He is desperate to save his child. And so Jesus, seeing this situation, he, of course, in compassion, says, all right, I'll come with you. And so they begin to make their way through the crowd, following Jairus to his house. But as they make their way through the crowd, something interesting happens. Uh, At some point, a woman comes up from behind him. Uh, She's given no name. Uh, We're told that she has no money. She spent it all on doctors who have not helped her. She's got this chronic illness which has caused her to bleed uh, continually for 12 years, which is interesting that we're told by Luke it's 12 years. That's the exact same age of the girl. So the girl's entire lifetime, this woman has been bleeding. Uh, this child who has a a family for 12 years and this woman who has no one for 12 years. And so we begin to see this kind of contrast even though they're converging at the feet of Jesus. So this hemorrhaging woman, uh, she's got uh, multiple issues because not only is it a health issue for her, uh, as we read from that passage in Leviticus, there's there's a social and a spiritual implication for what's going on. Because of Jewish purity laws, she would not have been allowed to participate in the life of the community, in particular, in the life in the household and in the life of the synagogue. And so because her uh, bleeding is not related to her menstrual period, it's not something that comes and goes, um, basically Leviticus prescribes that she cannot participate until this problem is solved. And I think it's important to understand this clean and unclean, it seems foreign to us, but what really this is pointing to is it's pointing to what Leviticus said. It's a a symbol. It's a symbol that all of us are unclean before a perfect and holy and clean God. And so when there's physical expressions of our brokenness, of our disorder, of the things that are wrong with us, um, there's a remedy that God gives. And so that's why there's sacrifice involved, but she has no remedy, and so she's stuck. 12 years she's been stuck in this place, 12 years of being excluded, 12 years of no physical touch, no community, I would have guessed no family, no joy, no life. Her illness is a brutal sentence of isolation, a source of shame and exclusion. 12 years, I can't even imagine what that would feel like. So on top of her physical illness, there's all these other implications, and she's desperate. She's desperate. And so in her desperation, she risks humiliation in in a public setting like this. It would have been common for someone to yell, unclean, if she had entered into the crowd. And perhaps even more, to, to make her leave, she faced real risk of harm and injury in order to see Jesus. And so just to touch him, just in the hope, in the hope, based on what she knew about Jesus, that she might be healed. And so she, she crawls to him through this crowd, unseen, reaches out and touches the hem of his garment, we're told. Just the edge of his robe. She just thinks, if I can just touch just the edge of his robe, perhaps that would be enough to heal her. And so she touches it and instantly, it says, she feels the difference. She knows that she's been healed. Deep inside, she knows that the power of Jesus to heal has moved within her own body. And Jesus knows it too. He stops. He pauses, he turns and asks the crowd, who was it that touched me? Now, Peter, uh, always quick to speak, um, he, He says, Jesus, are you kidding? Like, there's a crowd pressing in on you. So in other words, there's people touching Jesus all over the place, bumping him. They're trying to make their way through this crowd. And Peter says, Jesus, there's people all over touching you, what do you mean, who touched you? And Jesus says, someone's touched me. And I know someone's touched me because I perceive that power has gone out from me. So the woman knows And Jesus knows. And so I imagine the crowd parts. She's there on the ground. They make eye contact. And they're the only two people that really understand in that moment what has happened. Until he says these incredible words to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. It's interesting to me that we're told Jairus' name, but we're not told her name. And yet when Jesus speaks to her, he gives her a name. He gives her the name daughter. Daughter, your faith has made you well. She's a daughter, a daughter of God the Father. And and, and in a word, I think Jesus has done maybe a double healing here. He's healed her physically physically but he's also spoken this incredibly beautiful and powerful word, I think that in a way only she understands in this moment to the depths of her being, daughter, daughter, you're not alone. You're not an outcast. You are seen, you are wanted, you are loved. And in this poignant moment, She's explaining to the crowd <laughs> from the ground in the dust what's happened. A runner comes from Jairus' house. Your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. The announcement is—it's um, brutal, in its simplicity. She's dead. Don't bother. Hope is gone. Death is final there's nothing anybody can do don't bother jesus as a parent I, it's hard for me to even imagine what Jairus must have felt but I, I think i have some sense but just the fact that jesus in that moment seems unfazed by this someone said he turns to Jairus who is reeling i'm sure in shock and grief and he exhorts him he says do not fear only believe and she will be well and so they keep walking and again it's hard to imagine all that Jairus must have been experiencing as they walked to the home where his daughter now lay dead and moments they arrive later they arrive at his home and mourners have been called this is a custom jewish custom They're outside, they're wailing, they're they're crying out on behalf of the family, beating their chest in grief. And Jesus, he turns to them and he says, stop, don't weep, for she's not dead, but sleeping. In their shock at Jesus' comments, they begin to laugh. Imagine it was an awkward, nervous laughter. They didn't know what to do. This is what they do. They are called to mourn. They are mourners, and they're only called when somebody dies. But there's an insensitivity, an incredulity here as they marvel at Jesus' words that he would say something so preposterous. She's not dead but sleeping. The child is dead. And in some sense, Jesus, he he knows this. But what he wants them to know that even is this, that even death itself doesn't have the final say. Not when God in the flesh is present. And so he invites Peter, James, and John and the girl's parents and they go into the house and Jesus, I imagine, sits next to the bed. And again, another picture of clean and unclean, dead bodies, you don't touch dead bodies, they're unclean. And yet, Jesus, what does he do? He touches her. He takes her by the hand, this child, this 12 year old little girl, and he says, Get up. It's time to wake up. Child, arise. And then, once her dead body is charged with life breath enters her lungs, and she stands, she blinks, she calls. Jesus calls for food. She's hungry because she's well. She's not just alive, she's completely and totally restored. And her parents, understatement of the year, are amazed. <laughs> They're amazed. They've been given back their daughter and they are overjoyed. Jesus gives them this somewhat strange instruction to keep silent and then he leaves. Why the strange commandment to keep quiet? Only guesses. Um, Seems to be that in the Gospels, there's a, a pattern of Jesus wanting to kind of limit the impact of his miracles to a degree. I think so it didn't inhibit his ability to move and to travel, to teach, to be with people. Perhaps it was to protect even this family from the spectacle. He didn't want just the miracles to be the focus. For him, there was a bigger mission And so what we have here is this kind of dual, powerful, miraculous encounter with Jesus. And I want to just take just a few minutes and highlight, I think, three things this morning that this reveals to us, encourages us with, teaches us. And the first is this, that we are all powerless and desperate. Whether we feel that way this morning or not, we are all powerless and desperate in our lives And we can connect, I think, at a deep level with both Jairus and the bleeding woman. What's interesting to me is that Jairus and the bleeding woman in so many ways could could not be more different. He's a man with influence and status. She's an outcast. He's got a home and servants and a family. She's destitute and alone. He was a ruler of the synagogue. She wasn't even welcome in the synagogue. He approached Jesus from the front. She approached Jesus from behind. Her name is unknown, his is well-known. And so these two figures could not have been more different, and yet they both find themselves in the exact same place, specifically, we're told, at the feet of Jesus. And so what they share is far more profound than their differences. And they find that at the feet of Jesus. They are both powerless and desperate in the, faith, in the face of death and disease. And so the woman... In her case, she's well acquainted with powerlessness. For 12 years, again, 12 years, she struggled in isolation, experienced chronic disappointment at the hands of physicians who promised much and delivered little. And then Jairus, he's powerless. It's a new instant, more uh, acute experience, but he too feels powerless. He's always been able to care for his family, provide for them. He's a leader, a ruler in the synagogue, but now she's dying and there's nothing He's able to do. And so he too, in his desperation, finds himself at the feet of Jesus, powerless and desperate, something we all experience at some point, or at many points, in our life. It's a fundamental reality to the human condition. We learn this painful lesson at different times and in different ways. Maybe it's through the loss of a job. Maybe it's through the trials of parenting. Maybe it's through the fa- in the face of an addiction. Maybe it's through a life threatening illness. Maybe it's through the loss of someone you love. But at some point, we all hit this wall. We all face this level of crisis. We don't know what to do and we don't feel in control. In some ways, I think it, it's felt even more acutely as 21st century Westerners because. We live in an affluent society, the most affluent society in the history of the world. We control thousands of details every day with a tap and swipe of our fingers, and yet we have no power over the forces of nature. We have no power over loneliness within our own hearts. We have no power in the face of things like Alzheimer's. We have no power to stop the loss of parents, the loss of children the loss of close friends. From the moment we are born, our culture tells us that we can do anything and we can be anyone. But that's not really true. We're not victims of fate, but we do have to face the reality of just how little control we actually possess. This is the human condition, like it or not. And so as we face our own powerlessness, we're left with the question, what do we do? What do we do when we're confronted undeniably? We can't ignore it, we can't deny it. What do we do? Most people, most of the time, what happens is their whole life comes crashing down. But this is where the second thing I think we can learn from these encounters with Jesus comes in. And the second thing I think, the beautiful thing here, is we see that Jesus loves us and meets us in our desperation. Jesus loves us and meets us in our desperation. When the woman touches Jesus, just touches her, Jesus stops, and it's inferred, but he stops and he turns towards her. It's really interesting to me that the power of touch that we see over and over and the fact that Jesus seems to be moving towards people in places of desperation, whether with Jairus on the way to his house or towards this woman. Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. What an amazing statement. In the press of the crowd, a particular touch, one touch has drawn out the power of Jesus. That power has now coursed through her body, located the deep wound within, and healed her instantly. It's in moments like this that we have a window into who Jesus really is. And we can catch a glimpse of the power of God at work in him It's as if he can barely contain it within his flesh. Eternity is present in the midst of this crowd and she touched it. And in the presence of faith, his power surges out of him to heal and restore because that's what the creator and the giver of life does. He heals and restores. It's not magic. There's no incantations or spells. This is the raw power of the God of the universe interacting with her humanity. Jesus doesn't drain out like a battery. He emanates power and it's endless and it's absolute and it's life transforming. The gospels tell us that Jesus is both God and man, fully God and fully man. Somehow in a human body, Jesus, God has chosen to reveal himself to us. He's come among us. And that's a shocking truth that we are maybe too familiar with that we can miss. And this highlights it for us. God in the flesh. The Shocking truth is confirmed here in this story where Jesus displays a kind of absolute power that can only come from God. And so already in Luke's gospel, Jesus has shown that he has the power to, to do all kinds of things, resist evil and temptation from the devil. He's healed people. He's, um, he's restored broken bodies. He's brought out demons that were rooted in people's lives. He's calmed a storm again and again. We we see these stories. And 2,000 years later, it's easy for us maybe to read these and think they're myth or they're legend or they're somehow exaggerated in order to inspire us and give us confidence that Jesus was who he said he was or confidence in his teachings, that these things maybe perhaps could be true that he claimed But remember, the Gospels first appear within the lifetime of those who experienced these events. There were witnesses to these things. There were hundreds, if not thousands of eyewitnesses who could have challenged the veracity of these kinds of things, raising a young girl from the dead, instantly healing a woman through touch. It's not easy to fake these things. And we may think, oh, these people were naive back in the day. They weren't. They knew what it meant to die. They knew what it meant to be diseased and broken. And so reading these stories, we're left with the undeniable assertion that Jesus is powerful in a way that only God is powerful over nature, disease, demons, and even, yes, death itself. But there's more to him than sheer power. There is also what I would say we see here is a blind love. What do I mean by that? Jairus and the unnamed woman represent opposite ends of the social spectrum like we've talked about. Jairus is the most important person in town and this woman is like a shadow, hardly seen, hardly noticed, completely outcast. And Jesus has the same response to both of them. In fact, what's interesting is he actually makes Jairus wait. He makes the more important person Wait while he addresses and cares for this woman. In a way, Jesus' love is blind to so many of the things that we think are the most important. He makes no distinction between rich and poor, influential, unimportant. His love, like his power, is absolute and unbounded. And it's expressed as he receives that power, the powerlessness, and he heals them. And Jesus loves us even in our weakness, even in our brokenness, and he meets us in that pain. He loves us, and he loves to use his power to help us and to heal us. And so I just wanna encourage you, wherever you are this morning, whatever you're experiencing, maybe you are in a place of powerlessness and desperation. And maybe you can't see that on the outside, but it's going on within. And I just wanna encourage you, Jesus sees your powerlessness and your desperation, and he loves you, and he and he alone has the power to bring you healing and hope in a way that nothing else and no one else can in this life. And that brings me to the final thing that we learn through this is that through faith in Jesus, we really can find healing and hope. Through Jesus, through faith in him, we can find healing and hope. Look at verse 48. It says uh, that Jesus declared, again, to the healed woman, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. In verse 50, it's interesting, Jesus says to Jairus, do not fear, only believe, and she will be made well. Jesus commends the woman for her faith, and he urges Jairus to believe that the power he has just seen at work in the woman can even overturn the death of his daughter. Faith building on faith. What unites these stories of these two very different people is that they converge at Jesus at the same moment and in the same position as they put all their hope and all their trust in him. They come to him, in other words, in faith. That's what distinguishes them from the mass of people around him. It is faith in Jesus that bridges the gap between the powerlessness of our human condition and the all-powerful grace of God. And it's only by faith in Jesus that we can adequately address our human condition. Now maybe you've been struggling with something in the past. You've been down at a time in your life and you've had people in your life, friends, well-meaning friends, uh, who have told you, well, just have a little faith. Just have a little faith. Or perhaps um, you've been kind of walking around with a, with a bad attitude uh, and someone says, oh, well, you know, just, just you need to change your frame of mind. Right? You need the, the power of positive thinking. Be positive about what's going to happen. And I just want to say, this, this, what Jesus is holding before us, is totally different than that. It's not that. Positive thinking and generic faith will not cut it. Will not cut it when your daughter is dying. Will not cut it when you're in a place of desperation and brokenness. This is not the kind of faith that Jesus commends here. The faith that Jesus is describing here, in other words, it's not a disposition. It's an act of desperation. Faith is born out of a courageous recognition of the truth about our condition. Faith is not irrational. It is not without direction. It is entirely reasonable because the man in whom we put our faith has demonstrated time and time and time again that he is worthy of our trust. Faith is not generic. It is particular. It has an object, and that object is Jesus. It is faith in Jesus that can bridge this gap between our powerlessness and the powerful, life changing grace of God. It's the only way to deal with our human condition. It's fascinating that all the people crowding around Jesus, all of them touching, only one is healed. Isn't that interesting? Lots of people touched him. If Jesus is just like a genie's lamp, then everybody would be getting healed just because they touched him. But only this woman is healed. Only one experiences the power of God pulsing through her body. Only one is singled out. Why? For her faith. For her faith. Lots of people that day wanted to be around Jesus. They wanted to see what he was doing. They wanted to see what he was about. They wanted to be part of the action. But they were not putting their faith in him. Certainly not like this woman. And I think this is true today. It's entirely possible to believe that there's a God, right? But never actually take a step of faith in that God. It's possible to come to church for years, going through the motions of sitting and standing and singing and all the things that we do, all the religious activity that we do, and never actually fall on your knees before this Jesus and put your faith in him. Jesus' invitation to us is the same invitation that he offered this woman and to Jairus. It's an invitation of putting your faith in him as the all-powerful God of the universe. Being spiritual is enough. Being religious isn't the answer. We all eventually have to face the fact that we are powerless and we need a savior in Jesus. In verse 48 and 50, this is lost in the English translation, but I think it helps us really see Jesus' heart for them and for us Jesus says to the woman, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Then he turns to Jairus and he says, do not fear, only believe, and she will be made well. In both verses, the result of faith is made well. But the verb uh, in the original Greek here, the word that Jesus would have used in the, um, in the original language is to save. In other words, what it says is, daughter, your faith has saved you. Jairus, believe, and your daughter will be saved. Jesus, in other words, who would willingly go to the cross to die in place of the dying, is saying to them, and he says to us, not only can I heal your body, but I can save you for eternity. We don't need a hero or a teacher, we need a savior. We need Jesus. We are powerless, and he is all powerful and he invites us to believe in him and put our trust in him. As we do, he promises to be our healing and our salvation because he loves us. Because of Jesus, we can hear the words, go in peace. We can live in peace. The gift of Jesus is not just salvation, but it's peace, it's wholeness, the life that comes from knowing that he is the Lord and Savior that we were made for. And so just stepping back again from the story, I wanna encourage you, take some time this week just to, to read over this again and ask the Lord to minister to you, to speak to you. Put yourself in the shoes of these people that we find here because the invitation that Jesus offered them is the invitation that stands today. Whatever you're facing, the question is, will you come to Jesus and will you fall before him at his feet and put your trust in him? Will you put your faith in him? Will you be honest with yourself and with God about the limits of your power and confess the extent of his? Will you bring your fears and your failures and lay them at his feet? Because this is where our stories converge, at the feet of this Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we give you thanks for this beautiful and powerful story And Holy Spirit, you know what's going on in our hearts this morning. And Holy Spirit, you can do more than any mere words could ever do. Lord, you know the deep places of pain and hurt. Lord, you know the places of desperation. Lord, maybe places that we've closed off and denied and avoided because we just didn't know what to do with it. And so Holy Spirit, I pray that even this morning that you just in the way that you healed this woman and raised this young girl from the dead, you would do a miracle in us that we might know that you are the God who is powerful to save, who loves us and invites us to come and receive all that you have to give us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks again for listening. We hope this resource has been helpful to you. If you have questions or are just looking for more information, you can check out our website at ApostlesHouston.org.